Hey everybody, this is Dr. Annie Wilczek. This week, uh, it's part two of my conversation with Dr. Vanessa Fola about her research on money laundering and financial crime. This is episode 24 on the march to 1,000 downloads, episode 24 of Untenured Tracks. But it, it is sort of remarkable in its, like, it, it seems on the face of it, right? It seems like such a great system. The optics of it are great. Oh, yeah. You know, like, the, the OECD decides that it's going to convene a working group, and they are going to develop this international standard to which all member nations are going to be harmonized. The Financial Action Task Force is a thing. Every country that's a member is going to sign on, and they are going to implement an anti-money laundering system in their country. And it's going to be mutually evaluated on a regular basis by other member nations, and the deficiencies are going to be pointed out, and countries are going to improve on their reporting or their know-your-customer standards, or they're going to ensure that specific industries come on board. It all sounds great, but when you get down to the nitty-gritty, when you actually talk to the people who are doing the work, you realize that, like all systems, my fellow sociologists, my fellow social scientists and political scientists and economists and criminologists, like all systems, this one was never going to work the way that it was intended to. Um, and I, the problem for me, too, is that the consequences for people who get caught in the system are not zero. So you would never know that you'd been reported to FinTrack or FinCEN or Austrack or whatever the permutation is in the country that you live in, you would never know. And you have no right to ask because, at least in Canada, this is a national security issue. So that's one. Um, information will reside about your personal financial transactions on a server for a t- length of time that will vary based on where you are, essentially. Um The other problem, though, is that financial institutions have the right to use this information as a way to assess your, and this is not their language, this is mine, uh, to assess your fitness as a client. So if you are doing things that cause them to report you, say, three times, or um, cause them to question whether you might theoretically break a particular kind of law, they can remove you as a client so they can send you a letter and i've seen these letters they're called uh depending on the institution de-risking or demarketing letters where we remove the risk from the financial institution or we remove you from the market right we de-risk or demarket you and you have 30 days to get yourself out of here as a client the implications of that for people are very significant when you think about, as we talked about, how fundamental it is to have a bank account in a capitalist society. Advanced capitalism requires that you have electronic cash now. I mean, there are places where you can't even transact with 
like like legal tender, like actual cash money. You have to use um, plastic. Mm -hmm. So not having access to a bank account can cause people real harm. Yeah, it's uh, so they get the letter and then they have 30 days to withdraw their to like close out their account, right? Am I understanding yep. it correctly? So yep. once they close, like, is it like on their record? So if I go, it's like go down the street to the next big national bank and try to open an account, will they be like, <sighs> they shouldn't. Um, and you should be able to open an account. Uh-huh. Uh, there are specific people, however, who work within each institution who are allowed to talk to other institutions about, um, risky clients specifically right clients of of note and it's not clear at all i have no knowledge and no one does from what i can tell um what kinds of information is discussed like really discussed not just in a policy way right but like what they talk about when you pick up the phone what information is shared and I, i i don't love the idea to be honest of people having their transactions monitored and then process through what is essentially an alternative system of justice Mm -hmm. uh, that you have no recourse to because Mm -hmm. you're investigated within the bank. So it's private according to their, shall we say laws, you know, their norms. Mm -hmm. Um, You are then um, once investigation is completed, if you're a candidate for this de-risking process, uh, basically a coven is convened, like a group of people are convened and they assess your file (laughs) and (laughs) big boiling pot. if they drop you in the pot, um, <laughs> they, you know, they, they convene this group and the group, you know, discusses, um, the clients and then they decide if they're going to de-risk them or not. And, you know, you're then sort of executed, right? You're banished from the bank. And, you know, some people might be given a probationary period of like, if you don't stop this behavior, if we see one more instance, you're booted, but, I know of other people who have been, you know, booted on site for things that are not even criminal. So, you know, this information sort of takes on a new life. It becomes a part of its own separate non-justice process is also troubling and wholly unforeseen. So, you know what it reminds me of? And I apologize. This is going to, this relates to our conversation before we started recording. This is like plagiarism. This is, like, how universities handle, like, academic integrity, right? Like, I'm not supposed to know, like, you take my class, anybody can register for my class as long as they meet the prereqs. And even then, I have students in my classes who who freely enroll without having met the prerequisites. I don't know if any of them have ever been busted for plagiarism or any kind of stuff in the past. Um, If I bust them for it, um, there's language in our handbook that says, like, you might get expelled, but nobody's ever expelled. And then nope. you report it to somebody and the student probably, I mean, the student will likely know, right? That, cause I, I'm going to be like, you cheated in my class. Here's your zero. Have fun. Um, yep. they don't really have any recourse of challenging it. Um, the students who don't like care about their grades anyway might not even check their email to see that they they failed that class or failed that assignment, and then they can just next semester take whatever classes they want to. But when you said like they get three strikes, my first reaction was like three. That's that should be one. But then like no, it shouldn't be one. It should be like infinite. <laughs> but then what's the point then? <laughs> if, 
we've come to, we've come full circle, right? My entire recent search basically boils down to money laundering and terrorist financing control, colon, what's the point? <laughs> how, so how do you, do you even like talk to your students about this or do they know about your research or is it, do you find it is so complicated that maybe because it's not car chases and shootouts, typically <laughs> you're not super into it. Like white collar, I, white collar crime is always a hard thing for me to teach personally. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I I pitch it as you know, this is the type of crime that's it's this is definitely the most dangerous. This is the one that has the biggest impact on society. This is the one we should be really worried about. But then I see their eyes like just the their souls go away, or they have like a a transcendental out of body. They're physically in my classroom, but really they're back in their dorm playing Fortnite. <laughs> you know, like, I'm never going to get to shoot anybody. I'm never going to get to be in a car chase with this. Nobody died, her- like, tragically, so. They've grabbed their phones. They're back on Tinder. Yep. So I'll tell you what I do with my financial crime class that I don't do with any other class that I think helps this. Um, I come with with an incomplete syllabus to class on the first day. Mm-hmm. And what I do is, and it's a, it's a pedagogical exercise for the class. They don't know that that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do is I pick, say, if I need to have 11 weeks of the class, 10 weeks of the class um, plotted out in terms of topics, I keep the first week for myself as like, a, these are the three different theoretical hooks that we're going to use to frame this course. And then I put them into groups And I have them go through um, the topics and suggested readings that I might pick from. And I let them choose. I let them decide what we're going to study. I pick from organized crime and corporate crime. I pick from things that they will want to study and things that I think they might want to study, but I don't know if they'll want to study. So, I mean, there are some sort of fan favorites that show up semester to semester, Mm -hmm. but they always surprise me and I like that they surprise me. For example, um, this most recent time that I taught the course, I put in a week on cryptocurrency. The time that I put that in before that I gave it as an option for them to choose in a previous iteration of the course, nobody wanted to touch crypto with a 10 foot pole. They were like crypto hard, weird. We don't know anything about computers, scary, don't want to fail. And and that's them. Like I, I, I do that because I genuinely, I will teach anything they want to learn about financial crime, literally anything that you want to learn. I promise you, I will teach you. Um, but it's your choice. So mm-hmm. choose carefully. This class was like, I want to learn everything about crypto. Like I want to know, like, you know, I want to know about Bitcoin and the Silk Road. And I want to know what the new emerging, um, you know, ways of discovering who's using crypto for what purpose are. And that was that was really validating for me as an instructor because it meant that the process actually works, right? Like they will more likely sustain their interest in a course that they might be iffy on if they get to pick the topics. So um, in that most recent version of the course, this is my first year at St. Mary's university. It was super fun. Um, I had students pick the class picked uh, corruption. They picked, um, uh, human trafficking, they picked, uh, they didn't want to do drugs, which I was shocked by. I was shocked. I mean, I know that we've legalized marijuana up here, but mm-hmm. you know, there are other drugs, but they were like, no, no, no. We've been doing drugs for years. We're so bored of drugs. Yeah. 
which I was like, okay, cool. Like, and I would have, I might've put drugs in. I don't know. Um, what else did we do? We did counterfeiting. Um, we did, um, uh, contraband goods. And in that week was super fun because we contrasted things like, um, poached rhino horns and, um, uh, antiquities looted and sold by ISIS. I mean, it was, it was super interesting to do. And, I feel like giving up a measure of control to the students in that way, it's a small measure of control because like I said, mm-hmm. it's my area. I love it. I'm happy to teach literally anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time we get to money laundering and terrorist financing at the end of the course, they sort of understand the systems, the structures involved. Um, they understand better why global estimates are, uh, wildly off and probably unlikely to be accurate. Uh, they understand things like push and pull factors. They understand all of these other bits and pieces that we study through other topics. So by the time we get to money laundering and terrorist financing, they're excited to learn about it. And it's not, you know, scary or abstract or, um, or boring even. So that's, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. most, there are some students who, you know, obviously would rather be playing Fortnite, but I find that by the end of the class, most of them are into it enough that they're willing to take risks too with their term papers. And that's also Mm -hmm. validating. I had a guy write a paper on wine fraud. Who knew? (laughs) Right? Who knew? I learned a lot about wine fraud to grade that paper, but I I know about wine fraud now. Um, I had a student who completely, changed his paper topic and wrote this really awesome piece on uh, corporate beneficial ownership. I mean, he came to me for a lot of help, but my perspective is I will put in what you put in. So if you want to talk about your annotated bibliography till the cows come home, then you show up at my office during office hours and we do it. So that as a pedagogical tool, letting giving them sort of a constrained field of choices lets them feel like they have ownership over the course, which they do. Mm-hmm. And it sort of means that, you know, if I give you two pieces, three pieces, maybe some weeks, you're more likely to have read, right? And you're more likely to be interested. And if this is a topic, even if you're the only person who's interested in this topic, if this is a topic you're passionate about, I can teach to you today. And that has made teaching a course that students think is going to be scary or hard or boring so much more fascinating. Yeah, I think it's really fun to give them more control over stuff because I I, I mean, one of the things that I like about this job is the randomness, <laughs> you know, uh, so I like I've started letting them write their final exams, like in lieu of like any kind of study guide, like you guys write the questions. Because I know that the the students who are going to get an A and are going to, like, way over-prepare, like, it doesn't matter what I throw at them, right? And the students who don't care, who are still around at week 16 but don't care, um, they're not going to study anyway, <laughs> right? There's no amount of, of jeopardy or whatever. Like, it's not. And so, like, you guys write the final. And most of the times the questions are the same, but sometimes, and, like, I'll do a thing where they'll start rattling off questions and I'll, I'll type them up on the screen verbatim <laughs> and, and it causes like confusion sometimes like panic, like, <laughs> like they, they're not happy with, um, so like one time a student said something like, we talked a lot about the war on drugs this semester. So something about that. And so I wrote that up on the screen and he, 
he got like red faced and the, and but like I put that on the that was the question verbatim on there and so it's so like little things like that. Um, That's delightful. There was one semester I I had them watch the first season of The Wire, and oh, they were they were like and so we were writing the final and a student raised his hand and he's like, uh, "Where's Wallace?" <laughs> like done <laughs> done perfect perfect question for your final where's wallace <laughs> and they they went off and so i i like personally i i think like exams and assessment are kind of silly um so any way to try to hack that is like again it keeps me coming to work but like yeah. giving them the control over the content especially in like these big general classes um, instead of us agonizing over like, do we have two weeks of this or what? Like, just let them do it. They're the one paying. Like, yeah, does it really matter <laughs> in 10 years? Like, they signed up. Like if they want to stick it out to the bitter end, at least they get, you know, a measure of sort of investment in it. Yeah. And I, I talked to some of my former students about when I did that for the first time, um, I couched it for them as like, I have FOMO. I love every topic. I mean, slightly true. Uh, I couldn't choose you guys pick. Um, but then, you know, I made them sort of like, help me, help me figure out how to like hook the topics together so that we could treat them as like a unit and then they could have a test. And so by the end of it, they were like, one of my students, she's very, very bright. Um, she's now in grad school. She like literally looked at me and said, did you do that on purpose? Like very sort of level and <laughs> frank and suspicious. Yep. And uh, I was like, yes, yes, I did do that on purpose. Did did it work? Did you like it? And she was like, oh, you tricked me. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, like, yes, like, you know, fist pump. I did it. It worked. I reached you. And, uh, and that was great. That was great. So, you know, like I'm all for it. You want to like, this is the topic. You know, I'm not going to let them pick in something like research methods because then they would pick, you know, we, we just want to talk about like naturalistic observation for 13 weeks. I want to spy on my friends. Like, I can't, I can't <laughs> yeah. have that happen. Yeah. But, uh, but in like a substantive course, like a, like a, like a course that's centered on a topic, why not? Yeah. Um, so the last thing I want to talk to you about is I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how to word this. So. Uh, students that I deal with typically, I have a lot of students who have always wanted to go into law enforcement and that's why they ended up in the major. And so like dealing with, dealing with those students is a very different challenge from students who are like, maybe they found their way into the major because of me. Um, and they have a, like a deep suspicion of the system overall. Um, but that's all like an American context. So I guess I'm, I'm just curious, like what types of of myths do you have to deal with or like attitudes that students come in having that that you know aren't going to be like super beneficial to them or you know what i mean like like those kinds of like everyday teaching challenges what's that Uh, like for you oh that's a great question we i get my fair share of um and at every institution i've been at and i've taught at a number of different schools and campuses um, at every institution, they treat sort of criminology, law and society, sociolegal studies as a pre-law major. I mean, to be fair, every undergraduate major is pre-law because 
and it's a retrospective pre-law thing because like biology is pre-law if you go to law school after biology. So like, right. Mm -hmm. But they have this sort of conception of themselves as being pre-law. And so, um, that's one sort of class of student. And then we have, you know, in every class I've ever taught, I also have my aspiring police officers. Um, I have students who come from minority backgrounds and that, that has varied across the country in terms of like concentration as to what they are, um, who tend to have sort of uh, personal or community based negative experiences with the police. And those students can be kind of challenging to have in a classroom. My perspective on teaching like those different kinds of groups who all have different expectations of what they're going to take out of the course is that I teach from a really empirically driven place and my goal is not to get them to like the criminal justice system or hate the criminal justice system, but rather to discuss whatever we're talking about, to take a position that is defensible with respect to evidence and um, you know, in, in the current course that I'm teaching, Exploring Criminology, which is a theory meets method course, um, to problematize the theories that are used to explain the particular phenomenon. And so I, I mean, I have my own politics about stuff and I try to keep them out to the greatest extent that I can, which is really hard. Um, but I really do want them to critically engage with both the readings and to be evidence-based about how they treat those readings and also to critically engage with their own experiences. So, you know, when we talk about things like uh, sexual assault, which is a, you know, a problem that we're facing on university campuses, um, I try to get them to understand, you know, like the unique situation of the campus and like what campus life is like. Um, in Canada, when we talk about sexual assault, the range of offending behaviors that that can encompass, you know, all the way from like low grade, uncomfortable, unwanted, unwelcome and unnecessary sexual touching to actual like rape and how, you know, let's think about what happens when we collapse those categories. Your mind goes to the worst case scenario. But if we look at a lot of the data, a lot of what's what we see is actually far less serious. It's not that, you know, people are being, you know, stranger danger in the shadows. So when we talk about these things, you also have to bear in mind sort of what we might actually be seeing outside the categories, what goes into them. It's not to say that it's okay that all that kind of touching happens, but rather when we think about that in relation to fear of crime, right? How does talking about this issue in this way influence how you feel about your safety, Right. And what kinds of steps you take around your safety, not to say that that fear is wrong or that that fear shouldn't result in those steps, but rather that the way information is presented to you influences how you act and how you engage with the world. And I want you to understand what goes into those statistics, what goes into those reports. Right. And how we might use that information to actually still make positive and pro-social changes regardless. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's challenging because, you know, then you come at it with students who think like, oh, well, if it's, you know, if it's not serious acts that count, why do we care? I mean, I can give you off the top of my head, like 50 reasons why we care. <laughs> um, but it allows for us to have a dialogue that takes sort of both ends, both extremes and say, OK, but there's a problem that's happening in the middle that still matters that we need to address as a society. So without the two sides yelling at each other. How do we come together to actually have a real reason discussion about something that's making a group of people feel bad, a group of people feel stress, 
um, and work together to come up with an actual workable social reaction to this, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, the objectivity thing too, is something that I've been like struggling with a lot lately because like, you know, in, in grad school, it's like, I was beaten over the head with it. Like you have to be objective all the time. Um, but it's impossible (laughs) and and nobody does it. So by allowing your students to pick like basically what the curriculum is and taking your kind of taking yourself out like a half step out, like that's more objective. I feel like than than having like this constant, like inner dialogue of, I can't say anything political, even though every choice you're making in the classroom is by definition political. You know what I mean? Like letting them pick the topics means that you're not unduly influencing. Well, it's a particular challenge too in criminology, right? Because like we deal with really sensitive topics. I mean, victimization experiences are deeply personal. I mean, I was robbed as a bank teller. That was, you know, traumatic and deeply personal to me. And, you know, had its own impacts for a while. Um, so, like, I understand the importance of dealing with these topics with sensitivity, but if I would, I would hope that in sort of like being empirically driven about things and you know giving my students a measure of control over their curriculum and what we talk about, like, or even you know letting them pick from the beginning of the course their own topic to work through in an annotated bibliography that they would fall, that they'll eventually follow into what I'm calling a research design project. So mm-hmm. pick your topic, learn about it. Let's work up like a, like a proposal, a, a short proposal, and then turn that into a, how would you theorize this? What would your research statement be? And what mixed methods design would you use to study this project? I'm hoping that I can sort of force them or rather show them the value of um, <laughs> thinking about, how you would study things in ways that don't necessarily appeal to you and reading things that stretch your brain so that even if this challenges your belief that you can argue it in a way that is not, I feel, or I believe, but Hey, look, all this stuff that I learned tells me. And and that's a good thing. And that's an Mm. important skill, no matter what the topic. And what are you going to do when like you think your results are going to look one way and then that, and that one way also kind of conforms to your belief system and then yeah. the data says, like, oh, actually, gun control is good or <laughs> or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and then what are you going to do? Because, I mean, I talked about this in classes past week. Like, you wouldn't want to go to a doctor <laughs> who is like, well, I feel this is going to work. It hasn't worked yet, but maybe you're the one. <laughs> right? Like, well, you know what? Like, I heard one time that, like, bloodletting was really good for headaches. So... <laughs> Yeah, there's a new Geico commercial that's been on for, and I guess it's not new anymore, but like sometimes just okay isn't okay, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's it's that same kind of thing. And if Geico is listening and you want to sponsor the show, um, I will take your money. (laughs) I'd be happy to change my insurance and everything. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And, And then they were like, okay, like that makes sense, I think, you know? Um, so the last thing I want to ask you about to rewind way back, because I don't know anything about this and I imagine that there are probably lots of people who don't. So you mentioned the Vancouver housing crisis. Could you just talk a little bit about that? 
Oh boy. Um, so uh, housing prices and uh, vacancy rates in some major metropolitan cities in Canada, Americans don't laugh, we do have some, um, are at historic lows. So um, dad, if you're listening, you are right about Toronto becoming the New York City of Canada. And I'm sorry, I rolled my eyes at you when I was 19 years old. Um, you had other things on your mind. You had that subway guy to keep an eye on. So oh, I, I, he was <laughs> he was heckin' suspicious. Yep. So um, <laughs> basically, what's happened is there there's a shortage of housing. Um, the prices of housing are through the roof. I mean, tear down bungalows have have gone for like two million dollars in Vancouver. Um, they are not that far behind in Toronto, and um, sort of people who are. 40-ish and under are basically squeezed out of the housing market. Um, that, of course, doesn't count if you have parents who can give you a giant down payment. Uh, but at any rate, housing affordability is a huge problem. And one of the questions is uh, whether and to what extent money laundering, and specifically uh, money laundering from other countries, is having an impact on uh, the availability of housing and the cost of housing. So there have been a number of measures that have been put into place to mitigate this issue. There's like a, a foreign home buyers tax that has been leveled against people who are non-residents in uh, Vancouver. Um, there are... Um, Many, many news features on, you know, my neighbor's home has been vacant and, you know, it's Oceanside and no one is ever there. Or this expensive penthouse condo in this very bougie area uh, is empty and no one's there. Um, that kind of coverage has sort of led to questions around how we might understand the impact of uh, financial crime in housing markets. Uh, the estimate that I read is about 5% of the cost or 5% of the problem is uh, linked to financial crime, but I, I would be interested to know, you know, the accuracy of that estimate. I'm not questioning it. I just, I want to read yeah. more about how it was arrived at. Yeah. And so I, I would imagine there, there has to be activists on the ground who are linking it to homeless populations too, right? We have all um, this all this vacant space and then all of these people who need housing, like this seems like a match made in heaven. Yes. There's, there's that problem. There's also the problem of affordability for um, young people who are from those cities and the fact that they are now sort of forced to leave those cities, which I know is not, you know, like one might say like, Oh, boo hoo. But um, you know, as somebody who was born and raised in Toronto and like dearly loves that city, I was never able to get in on the property ladder because I was always sort of just out of the reach of things. You know, the mortgage rules changed and then uh, suddenly you had to have a, as a first time home buyer, you had to have a, like a bigger down payment and a better resulting mortgage stress test. You know, if you're an unmarried person who's buying their first home by themselves, it can be very difficult to meet that when, you know, a 453 square foot condo is, you know, 500k right like that can be very difficult to meet and so um and you know as, as a grad student especially right like it's not like we're rolling in dough um and so it sort of has all of these how the housing affordability issues had impacts on who gets to live where you know we see there's a whole bunch of discourse around gentrification yep. um you know uh, lower income communities being pushed out 
And so those effects affect all of us in varying ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the question of the influence of of economic crime or money laundering in particular is, is I think, an important one that people are concerned about. Yeah. And I, so I live someplace that is on the, I think this is the right word, the receiving end of some of this stuff. So I'm two hours away from New York City. And so we have had like a minor population boom. Um, in, in like, so I'm in the heart of coal country, right? Um, the population of Wilkes-Barre is more than half of what it was 40 years ago, 45 years ago. Um, and so the cost of living here is, is super, super low. Um, I think the median income in Wilkes-Barre is maybe like 32, five, um, us dollars. So, uh, yeah. Um, so we have had people, I have lots of students now who have moved here from New York city who've been pushed out because, um, the rent is just unaffordable and like this, this direct pipeline, the rent is too damn high. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, and um, so we have a we have a lot of students from from New York City, and, and um, we also have uh, the I've heard um, the fastest growing Hispanic population in the U.S. Um, and so it's created like this really interesting uh, culture clash, I think. So like the city. So it's two things, right? It's like the rising Hispanic population and then historically like super white towns. Like so like a race thing. But then also like you're coming from New York City to what is functionally the sticks. <laughs> and and how do you I don't deal with that? What if you are, it would be really difficult for me, having grown up in like literally like downtown <laughs> urban Toronto, to move to like really northern ontario you know like that would yeah. be very helpful. i grew up in the suburbs outside of detroit and um so here like i feel like i'm in the middle of nowhere um but so i can't imagine how somebody who lived in like brooklyn for their whole lives and then got pushed out of, of like gentrifying brooklyn to come here of all places but like but they're like it's where their parents can afford now, right? Because what they were making in the city was unlivable, but here they're like practically wealthy because they're yeah. making 50 grand or 60 grand a year. And it's this untold fortune. But then like, so like the townies and the, and the kids, like there's, it's more than just the usual college kid, like college town conflict, because I, I, I just think there's like added levels to it. And it's really sometimes very sad. Yeah. <laughs> like, the stories I'll hear, like we couldn't make it in, in the city anymore. And I really missed the city. And, but my dad drove us here and we drove around and he was just raving up that the opportunities here. I'm like, yeah, like that's cool. I'm glad that you're coming. I'm glad people are coming here, but. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge culture shock and a huge lifestyle change too. And if you're not used to something like that, I mean, you know, as academics, as you know, we don't, get to pick where we live. No. (laughs) (laughs) um, I mean, I'm fortunate that I'm in Halifax, which is like beautiful. I, I cross over the Bedford basin to commute every day. I go over like ocean water every day to go to work. I'm so lucky. I can see the ocean. I can actually see it right now Mm -hmm. as we're talking. Um, and I'm living in like, do you know what I mean? Like I'm not paying Uh some crazy seaside, rent to me. Yep. Um, there's been, you know, housing boom here and, 
Um, there's been like an influx of immigrants to Halifax and that's driven up the cost. And, you know, my perspective is sort of akin to your, the kinds of students that you're talking about, right? I'm like, wait, you want me to pay, you're going to, wait, you're going to let me pay $1,500, including a parking spot and a locker for a basically 1,500 square foot home. Do you know that you're ripping yourselves off? Because no one told you what things cost, like where I'm from. So, you know, for someone like me, this is, this is truly delightful. And I can see, though, on the flip side, how for somebody who is from here and who um, is sort of like, you know, working class, that is a very, very difficult development economically. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things to go back to the earlier question around, you know, Vancouver and Toronto and foreign investment, um, one of the things that people are concerned about is how much not just foreign money, but illegal foreign money is driving this particular crisis. So if if we're serious about finding out how much money that is, and then, you know, if it's a significant portion, acting on it, to come back to the work that I'm doing, can we at least get the right people to figure out if that money is coming in and where it's coming from? Because I'm not convinced that the people who are doing that work are the right people. And it's absolutely no slight on them. I can tell you they're all very conscientious. They're all, you know, very open about like what they're trying to do and how they sort of, you know, really do try to live up to their legal obligations. But it's clear that they are probably not in the right spot socially to do that work. And if if we think this is a problem, we should probably use the right tools to deal with it. It's also like a thread that I don't think anybody wants to pull <laughs> because like how much of the, I don't know, like how much of that money in Vancouver that's illegally in, or being laundered or whatever, like how much of that comes from other governments? <laughs> like how much of that is Trump money? <laughs> oh, listen, I heard you favorite one of all of these, which isn't about, um, it's not about a house. Uh, you should look up for your own edification and amusement, uh, my creative writing friend. You should look up uh, who bought Michael Jackson's glove. Okay. It's one of those like horrifically delightful, how, how does the world even happen kind of things where you're like, I'm sorry, what? This is where the money for that. Wait, this person bought that? I What? Why? How? Who? What? Like, that's how I felt awesome. when I was reading it. It was sort of like, someone had sort of like taken my, like, like the reality of my world as a snow globe and then just kind of like shook it gently and was like, here, this is how kleptocrats and like oh. the, the Coke glove come together. I'm going to be disgusted. <laughs> I can't you wait. You are also going to be like, you're going to be like train wreck horribly amused. So. <laughs> awesome. So that's a good spot to end this. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was super fun to talk to you. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, 
This show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.